My <clears throat> oldest daughter, Bailey, uh, is home uh, for a week from Harding University, and we actually have several students who are currently at Harding, uh, also Jack Johnson and Maggie Samples and Katie Hauer. And if you're, if you're not familiar with Harding and do not know where it's located, it's in the metropolis of Searcy, Arkansas. Searcy is about 50 minutes outside of Little Rock. Now, Little Rock has a Trader Joe's, so it can be considered a significant town. But Searcy is 50 minutes outside of Little Rock. Um, And then another 30 minutes outside of Searcy. So if you can imagine, you're in the middle of nowhere is a little town that caught my eye uh, our trips that we've taken to Harding to visit Bailey. The name of this little town in Arkansas uh, that has captured my attention just from reading the highway signs I've never visited um, is a town called Possum Grape. I don't know. I've just been kind of enamored by the name, Uh, so much so that I've actually done a little bit of research about the town. Evidently, years ago when they were naming the town, there was a disagreement. Half of the folks wanted to call the town Possum. This is an interesting story, right? (laughs) And the other half of the town wanted to call the Grape, and so they were able to compromise, and they decided together to name the town Possum grape. I mean, you just can't make that up. But uh, the town is known locally because there's actually a grape that grows in the wild in that part of Arkansas, and they make jam and wine out of it, and they've appropriately named that grape the possum grape. Now, I'm not poking fun at Arkansas. Uh, Every state has small towns with unique names. Um, Perhaps even you grew up in a small town with a very distinctive name, you know, the kind of name you hear, and you're like, that's a small town, like Possum Grape. I share that with you this morning as we get into Acts chapter 2, because in these verses, Peter introduces the crowd to the main part of his speech. And the main person of his speech that he introduces us to is Jesus of Nazareth. Now, it was a regular practice of the day to differentiate between people who might share a common name by adding their hometown to the end of their name. However, Jesus never does this in the gospel accounts. He never refers to himself as Jesus of Nazareth. Yet, this becomes a favorite way for Peter to refer to him In Acts, this is just the first of several times Peter will refer to Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth. In chapter 3, Peter heals a man lame from birth by saying, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I have, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. 
In chapter 4, he and John are arrested, and the leaders want to know about how the lame man was made well. And Peter said that it was by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that this man had been healed. Jesus of Nazareth. You may recall in John chapter 1, Philip found Nathanael and told him all about Jesus. He said, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And do you remember Nathanael's response to Philip? Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? After all, it was a tiny blip on the map an obscure town in the middle of nowhere. It's a town that was never mentioned in the Old Testament. So that means nothing noteworthy had ever happened in Nazareth. No one important had ever come from Nazareth. And in Jesus' day, as Nathaniel's response implies, being from Nazareth was synonymous with being despised. At the crucifixion of Jesus, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This was done both to mock Jesus and to anger the Jewish leaders. For the Jewish leaders, this was the ultimate oxymoron, like jumbo shrimp. There's no way these two can go together. You just can't put Nazareth and king in the same phrase. It's just not possible. So Peter loved to use the name that they had used to heap scorn on him. Peter loved to use the name by which they mocked him. Jesus of Nazareth? Do you mean that no place town in Galilee? Yet Peter takes the name from the notice on the cross and says, not only is Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth, the king of the Jews, but he's Lord of all. Last week, I compared Peter's speech at Pentecost to Lincoln's Gettysburg Address to Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. It's a a speech that helped ignite a movement. This little band of about 120 Jesus followers grew to over 3,000 on this day. Peter begins his speech by quoting from Joel chapter 2. We looked at that last week in response to the crowd's question, what does all this mean? He reassures them that what they've seen and heard has happened according to the Scriptures. In fact, Joel spoke of the outpouring of the Spirit in the last days, right before the coming of the day of the Lord. Peter then transitions here to the main point the primary emphasis of his speech. At the beginning of verse 22, he notes this transition by once again asking the crowd to pay attention. 
to listen closely to what he has to say. And he begins with Jesus of Nazareth. You see, that has to be the starting place. The speech that will ignite a movement must begin with Jesus. And in a sense, Peter's saying, look, before we get all caught up in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, we need to back up and talk about Jesus. You need to know about Jesus because the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is evidence, is proof that he is who I'm about to tell you he is. I had, I had actually planned, Gregory can uh, attest to this, I had actually planned to preach today from verse 22 all the way through 36. Uh, and I got to verse 24 and had to call it a day because we just didn't have enough time to fit it all in. Um, and so today, we're just going to begin by looking at these three verses, verse 22, verse 23, in verse 24. And in these three verses, Peter makes these three statements about Jesus that are critical. We can't, we can't go past, we can't begin, we can't get to verse 25 unless we understand what Peter's laying out for us here. These verses are critical to our understanding who Jesus is. Three things that we're going to look at today in these verses. First, in verse 30, verse 22, Jesus was accredited by God. That's first. Second, verse 23, he was handed over by God. And then third, verse 24, he was raised from the dead by God. So he was accredited by God, he was handed over by God, and then he was raised from the dead by God. First statement, verse 22, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Jesus was fully a man. He was one of us. He grew up in Nazareth. Paul would write in Philippians chapter 2 that though he was in very nature God, he made himself nothing and was born in human likeness. And I love that little phrase because it means he was born a human just like us. The Hebrew writer uses a similar phrase when he writes in Hebrews chapter 4 that Jesus was tempted in every way just like us yet was without sin. He was a human. He was a man just like us. In other words, he knows exactly what it's like to be in our shoes. Exactly. You know, a great exercise is to go through the Gospels and take note of the many ways that Jesus is just like us. For instance... He knows exactly what it's like to have a loved one die. He knows exactly what it's like to be betrayed by a close friend. He knows exactly what it's like to be made fun of 
and mocked because of his hometown. He knows exactly what it's like to be tempted by power and wealth and fame. He was born a human just like us. So Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God. Now, depending on your translation, uh, my NIV 84 says accredited. The KJV says approved. The ESV says attested. The NLT says publicly endorsed. And I like that translation the best. Jesus of Nazareth is given a public endorsement by God. And this begs the question, why? For what reason is Jesus being publicly endorsed by God? And here's the answer Peter gives in his speech. Jesus of Nazareth is being publicly endorsed by God as the king of the Jews, the promised Messiah. And how does God publicly endorse Jesus as the Messiah? Peter tells us he does this through miracles, which is the Greek word for dynamite. These were demonstrations of God's power. He publicly endorses Jesus through wonders. These were demonstrations of God's character, showing the world his love and his compassion and his mercy. And then he publicly endorses Jesus through his signs. These were demonstrations of God's kingdom. And so through miracles, demonstrations of God's power and wonder, demonstrations of God's character and signs, demonstrations of his kingdom, he publicly endorses Jesus as the Messiah. This is exactly what John tells us at the end of his gospel. In John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, he writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And there's no question that Jesus did some very unusual things during his time on earth. Even the Jewish historian Josephus, who was not a Christian, in his famous work called The Antiquities of the Jews, that was written in the late first century, wrote that Jesus was a doer of strange works. Even his severest critics did not deny his miracles. For instance, in Luke chapter 11, verse 15, They did not deny that Jesus had done a miracle. Instead, they claimed that it was done by the power of Satan. In Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 23, we read that John the Baptist's disciples had reported to John all about the things that they had seen Jesus do. And so John the Baptist sent two of his men to Jesus to ask him this important question. He asked him, are you the one who is to come, the Messiah, or should we expect someone else? So the men came to Jesus, and he asked him this question from John, and Jesus replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. 
The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are clean. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Now, this is a very insightful response by Jesus to John the Baptist. In response to his question, Jesus said, if you want to know who I am, then look at the miracles. Look at the wonders. Read the signs. Because of them, I have been publicly endorsed by God as the Messiah, the one who is to come. This is really important as as you read through the Gospels. The the accounts of Jesus' miracles in the Gospels are not just God showing off. Instead, Peter says they are a crucial part of the story of Jesus. He says that they're God's public endorsement for Jesus as the promised Messiah of the Jews. And so that's this first statement about Jesus of Nazareth, this man who might as well have been from Possum Great, Galilee. He was accredited by God. He was publicly endorsed by God through miracles and wonders and signs, which we have accounts of, eyewitness testimony of in the Gospels. Second, second statements in verse 23. Peter says, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Peter makes it very clear. Jesus was put to death by humans. And it wasn't just one person. It's the plural you, which included the Jewish leaders. It also included any Jews in Jerusalem who were demanding his death. Yet even as powerful as the high priests were, these Jews could not have done it on their own. They had help to use Peter's language here. Help, that included Pilate, included Herod, included Roman soldiers. Think about this with me. What if just 50 days ago, you had been in the crowd yelling, crucify him? What if just 50 days ago, you had been in the streets and you spat on the criminal when he walked past carrying his cross? What if just 50 days ago you'd been at Golgotha, sneering at him, hurling insults, and yet now here you are in the crowd, drawn to this unusual occurrence at Pentecost, and all of a sudden one of his followers stands up before you and says, listen very closely to me. You nailed him to the cross. Yet Peter's motive here is not to point fingers. Instead, 
He wants the crowd to know that the cross had a purpose. Peter says, this man Jesus was handed over to you by God's set purpose. The cross was not purposeless. And this is so important to our understanding of the gospel. Because, you see, if if God did not have a purpose for Calvary, then the cross was nothing more than another senseless act of violence. If God did not have a purpose for Calvary, then the cross was nothing more than another example of corrupt human leadership. If God did not have a purpose for Calvary, then the cross was nothing more than another example of a cruel hate crime. However, Peter says, this man of Nazareth was handed over to you by God's set purpose. In other words, the sinful actions of those who nailed him to the cross only happened because God had first handed Jesus over to them with the set purpose to save all humans from their sin through his death on the cross. God's set purpose was to send Jesus to the cross in order to destroy the wickedness of our sin and to cancel out the consequences of our disobedience by taking all of it upon himself in the person of the Messiah. Therefore, Peter says to the crowd, this Jesus, having been publicly endorsed by God as the Messiah through miracles and wonders and signs, did not reluctantly or tragically have his life taken by you, but instead he freely and willingly gave his life for you according to God's set purpose. So this this second truth about this identity of this man from Nazareth, so important to our understanding as well. First, he was a man attested by God, publicly endorsed by God as the Messiah. And then second, he was a man who was handed over by God. Set purpose. And third, this last statement here in verse 24 But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. But God. Isn't that one of the best little phrases in the entire Bible? But God. You know, we looked at that phrase last year in Ephesians chapter 2. 
the biblical understanding behind this little phrase is that no matter what anyone means for our harm, God can use it as part of his plan for good. But God is always true. And what I love about how Peter describes the resurrection in this verse is that God knew something that we didn't. (laughs) Look, there's no way God would have ever, 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 ever handed over his one and only son to wicked humans to be nailed on a cross if he did not already know by his foreknowledge an important piece of information about Jesus. This is what God foreknew. And and I love how Peter words this truth about Jesus. This is what God knew. God knew that it was impossible for death to hold Jesus. Now, because of my vocation, I have performed many funerals. And I've never once thought that death would not be fully capable of holding the person who lays in the casket. The hold of death on humanity is absolute. Death is undefeated. But the sense here is that even with death's track record, Peter sees a moral impossibility because of the beauty of Christ, because of the light of Christ, because of the power of Christ, because of the goodness of Christ, and the truth of Christ, and the life of Christ, and the character of Christ, and the holiness of Christ, and the sinlessness of Christ. Death was unable to maintain its hold on him. Peter proclaims that God freed Jesus from the agony of death. And the word translated agony is literally the Greek word for cords. And so the imagery here is when we die, death tangles us up in its cords and pulls us down into the grave. But God freed him from the cords of death. I love how Eugene Peterson translates it in the message. It reads, but God untied the death ropes and raised him up. Because death was no match for him. God freed Jesus from death with great ease. The imagery here in this language, it just kind of reminds me of of a toddler sitting down on the bottom step and with great ease untying his shoes in order to free his feet from the agony of wearing them. 
Jesus of Nazareth, credited by God, handed over by God, raised from the dead by God. Not only did God publicly endorse the man from Nazareth as the king of the Jews through miracles and wonders and signs, but according to his set purpose, in order to save all humans from their sin, God handed him over to be nailed to a cross knowing that it was impossible for death to hold him in the grave. God untied the death ropes and raised him up so that Jesus of Nazareth is not just the king of the Jews. He is Lord of us all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we've had this moment, this morning, these moments where we can just soak in who Peter declared Jesus to be. And I pray, Father, that these declarations of the identity of Christ will change our identity. I pray your spirit change us. What a blessing it is to know that the man from Nazareth is enthroned in heaven. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I'd like to offer uh, an invitation uh, to any of you here who heard the story of Jesus this morning and may have been convicted to the heart, cut to the heart. That's what we're going to learn about as we continue on in this, in this speech. When, they, when, when, when those who had gathered around that day heard and, and understood who this man of Nazareth really was and who God had made him to be, they were cut to the heart. They said, well, what should we do? And if that's you this morning, and you have heard who Jesus is, let me encourage you to, to, to turn from your ways, to turn from sin, and to give your life to him. To come to him this morning, put your faith in him, be baptized into his name, to allow the forgiveness of sins to free you and to be filled with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We'd love to be part of that process in your life today. Let's stand together and sing.